Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 19 of the podcast, the topic is machine learning in manufacturing. Our guest is Michael Zolotov, CTO and co-founder at Razor Labs. In this conversation, we talk about where we are with machine learning and AI for manufacturing. What are the main techniques? What's possible now? What will be possible soon? Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Trond Arne Undheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the manufacturing upskilling community, launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Michael, how are you today? Hi, Tron. Great being here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, sure. This is exciting. We'll talk about machine learning and manufacturing, um, which you, you you know quite a bit about. Look, I'm excited. You you you're an engineer from uh, uh, you know from uh, Tel Aviv, and then you went ahead and obviously <laughs> did the military thing that many of you do in Israel. Uh, and I'm super excited about that. So let's let's chat about it for a second. And you know, and then obviously now founding a, a startup, which we'll really talk about. But what is this taught your pro- program? The next uh, R and D leaders in the Israeli military. What, what, what's I mean? What is the public version of what that is all about? <laughs> so basically, as you as you know, uh, a military service is a mandatory service here in Israel. Every boy and girl in the age of eighteen is listed to the army, and uh, we're trying to um, to find out uh, technical uh, solutions to the problems, to the challenges, to the threats we're facing. Yes. And uh, Talpiot is a program where essentially you uh, they pick 50 uh, of the brightest minds every year to be the what they call the next uh, R&D leaders of the army. And basically one of the key challenges that the army faces is that there's such a huge flood of, uh, of uh, information and the goal of some of these uh, leaders after they finish the program, it's a three-year program, is to um, use artificial intelligence and specifically deep learning in, to be able to fuse all these information sources to basically whether it's uh, detect threats, uh, get insights, intelligence, and so on. Uh, it puts together both academic studies, uh, physics and computer science together with military studies. And uh, after that, you are placed in one of the uh, uh, of the critical points of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And specifically, what I've dealt with is fusing together uh, radar signals into to be able to detect uh, threats on uh, on the country, on the Israel country. It's it's fascinating because. You know, you have to get the skills somehow, and and in this case, you get to apply some of your techniques from university in a in a in a practical setting. But anyway, let's let's move on to to industry 4.0 and how you have started to apply it. So you know, fast forward a few years, and you you know you're obviously out of the military forces, and you you get together with some of your buddies, and uh, <laughs> you form a startup. How? Was it natural for you to move into uh, basically the manufacturing side? Is that something that was on your mind or were you just interested in applying your machine learning skills? Um, So (laughs) it's more of the second option. Uh, 
when we were discharged from the army, we, you know, we were in the uh, uh, we were in the field really from the dawn of deep learning, and we were looking for the really the the uh, the sector or the market with the highest highest impact that this technology can make. And uh, after inspecting several markets, we found Industry 4.0 as the place to perform a gigantic impact on the market with this technology. So that's mm-hmm. what uh, drove us. So Industry 4.0 means a lot of things. In the U.S., they typically kind of go for this term smart manufacturing, at least when it's applied directly to manufacturing, because mm-hmm. it sort of seems to be a, a very, you know, it's like a very inclusive and, and, and ambitious term also. What does it mean to you? And specifically when you said you can make a, an enormous impact with deep learning, what, what do you have in mind specifically? Give us a, a little deep dive into deep learning and manufacturing. Um, okay, so uh, would you like me to start with a really short intro of what's deep learning and how it differentiates from AI, machine learning? There's so many buzzwords out there. Yes, please, please. Okay, so basically AI uh, is really a buzzword today, but uh, it exists since the 50s. It's not a new thing. And it was actually built to solve complex problems that it was only thought that humans can solve them. That's how it started. In practice, uh, and obviously in the beginning, it was made of simple rules that really limited the capability of AI to solve uh, complex problems. And starting from the 90s, we had uh, machine learning that came up as a brand new technology. And the thing with machine learning is, uh, for the first time, the computer can actually learn from experience, but the human needs to define the exact features or parameters that are important. So let's take the most uh, simple uh, simple example. Let's say I want to differentiate between uh, a dog and a cat. So the features that I'll choose is, let's say, the color of the fur, the distance between the eyes, and so on and so on. And the, the machine learning algorithm will uh, find the optimal weights on the importance of, it, of each of these uh, features uh, to perform this differentiation. The problem is that because you're limited to the features that the person, uh, the people obviously extract, um, you're very also limited in the complexity of the problems that you can choose. And you could see that we really got to a very, uh, to a glass ceiling in many fields and that's where deep learning is a totally new thing. Deep learning for the first time allowed us to break this glass ceiling. And this is what allowed you know, Siri to understand what you're saying. It allowed uh, Facebook to detect uh, faces in, 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 uh, in photos. It allowed autonomous cars and so on and so on. And um, deep learning essentially finds itself the features that are important. Itself, it can choose millions and millions of parameters, many times invisible to the naked eye and can actually make sense of them based solely on examples. So in this case, you just give 1,000 examples of cats, 1,000 examples of dogs, and it by itself uh, understands how to do that. And we essentially simulate how we as people, how our brains work in a computer. So that's the, the, the revolution that affects really every part of our lives in, in so many applications. And uh, what we do in Razor Labs is we bring this uh, technology, this revolution to the industry 4.0, uh, where essentially the way that we see it is um, take these machines that up until now are not uh, aware of their environment. They're just a machine with a very specific programming that perform their task. They're not aware of what's happening. 
And using these uh, very sophisticated tools of deep learning, we can make them adapt to the environment, to this constantly changing environment, and actually produce more with less materials and um, be able to optimize whatever KPI is important to the client. It can be maximized throughput, it can be lower emissions, it can be more uh, higher energy efficiency, or it can be a combination of all, uh, of all of these factors together. And what are, what are the inputs that you're using? Do you just plug into the machines wherever they are and whatever their sensors are? Because, you know, in the dog and cat example, you're <laughs> assuming a vision input of some sort, like a, a, an image. But I'm assuming for many of these machines, it's not vision, but although vision can be one of them, right, with cameras or, or other types of computer vision, but it is other types of sensors. What, what, what are the most typical sensors that you'll find on on industrial equipment in factories these days? Okay, so that, that's an amazing uh, question. Essentially what we do, every machine or most of the machines come uh, out of the box with some sensors on them. And the very simple reason why the sensors are there are in order to make the PLC, the PLC is the logic that drives the sensors, the, the machine, sorry, uh, uh, basically uh, uh, make the PLC drive the machine. I'll give the very basic answer, the very basic uh, example. Let's take an autopilot on planes. In order for the autopilot to work, it uses sensors on the plane, such as the wind speed, such as the altitude of the air of the plane, such as the power of the engines and so on. It uses all these sensors in order to drive or to, to automatically fly the, the plane. So each of these gigantic machines already come with sensors that are used by the PLC in order to drive the, the machine, in order to operate the machine. And we leverage these existing sensors in order to fuse all of them or analyze all of them using deep learning. So the sensors are already there. They've been there for many years, gathered terabytes and terabytes of data that's stored and not leveraged today. And that's when we come into place. Got it. And, and deep learning is you know, is, is a paradigm. How, how wedded are you to deep learning? Because there are also other paradigms out there. I mean, obviously, it was a big kind of breakout moment a few years ago, I guess, with, uh, uh, you know, with some uh, deep learning data sets being released. Um, but uh, what are some of the other techniques that you're, you're using specifically? So we actually, uh, we use solely deep learning. And we focus specifically on deep learning because it allows us to break many barriers that are out there in the market. So essentially, um, most of our competitors use the more uh, the more classic or the older, the old-fashioned machine learning techniques, which might be less complex algorithmically, but eventually limit both the accuracy that you can achieve and the gen uh, the generality of the algorithm. So you can solve less problems and with less accuracy. And therefore, we only limit ourselves to, to deep learning, which do not have uh, uh, these uh, limitations. Uh, and I understand within deep learning, uh, which is kind of an, what's called a neural network approach by the analogy to the brain, which I find a little questionable. But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, I know you use reinforcement learning algorithms specifically. Can you uh, just explain that in, 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 a, you know, in essence? What, what does reinforcement refer to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, an amazing question. Uh, let's say you want to optimize a machine, and let's say that your KPI is uh, you're happy with your throughput, but you want a constant throughput. You want it with minimal variability. So essentially, uh, 
if you're in the real world, what you wanted, uh, you, what you would have wanted to do is you would have, uh, you, you have the parameters that you can change. For example, let's take a mill. You can change the speed of the mill. You can change the weight of the mill. There are many parameters. Uh, you can change, obviously, the composition of the materials going into the mill. And obviously, mills are used in so many manufacturing uh, uh, plants. And in this case, what you would, uh, would have wanted to do is you would want to perform some action and see how the machine reacts. Would it perform another action and another action? Obviously, that's not something that you can perform in real life because... I mean, that, that's not something that, uh, that you should do. So what you do is you take this mill and you essentially create a digital twin of this mill in a computer. And it is composed of two parts. The first part is essentially a simulator. The simulator does exactly that. If you, uh, again, in a computer, perform some action, the simulator tells you what would have happened if you would have done it in real life. So this is the first component. It simulates how the machine works. And then you have the second component, which is the agent. And the agent performs billions and billions of actions, everything digitally. Many times the amount of actions accumulate to, to hundreds of years of the real world if it would have been performed in the real world. And it performs so many actions and see so many reactions that it is able to create what's called a policy or the optimal policy that would maximize the KPI that you chose. So in this case, you want minimum variability of the throughput. And therefore, you're essentially, this agent now has, because it has seen hundreds of years of mill, uh, of milling simulations, it essentially has more experience than any mill operator out there in the whole world. And then you can take this agent and you can deploy it in the real world to give recommendations to the human actually uh, driving the mill, actually operating the mill. So this is called reinforcement uh, technology, reinforcement learning, where through reinforcement, through action, reaction, action, reaction, you're able to learn a policy that maximizes the KPIs that you, uh, that you choose. And many KP different clients choose different KPIs. One client can say, I want the same throughput, but with minimal emissions. Another client can say, I want the maximal throughput given the a constant or a minimal uh, amount of malfunctions in the system. So many clients have different KPIs, but uh, uh, this agent can optimize any KPI as long as you can define it. So it's sort of like experience on steroids. It would be like you had a factory <laughs> with thousands of people and you could run it for, for a thousand right. years or a hundred years. And then just look at all the experience that you would have had. It's, it's kind of fascinating. So here's my question. If you are a factory manager or a plant manager of some sort, and you're interested in this topic, uh, you know, we'll get into what Razor Lab specifically does in a second. But if you just want to understand the field of uh, deep learning applied to manufacturing, or, or even just various machine learning approaches. What is your best guess as to how they should do that? Are there courses available? Can you just go on YouTube and look it up? Or should they take six months uh, or a year and study it uh, you know, in the university? W what should one do these days to stay up with all of these techniques? Because not everybody has three years and can be chosen as the top 50 in the Israeli military. So we have to have some other options on the table. Of course. So it obviously depends on who the stakeholder is. I mean, obviously, a CTO, a chief innovation, a chief data officer in a company, uh, already they mostly come from engineering uh, backgrounds and have uh, this uh, knowledge. 
many times if the knowledge is uh, um, does not include specifically deep learning but does include machine learning, many times the gaps are not large. And whether it's through uh, universities or just uh, courses on Coursera, Udemy, and many others, or open Stanford courses, the, the gaps are not large. For business stakeholders, uh, which is, I think, the most the more interesting case to discuss, um, I think that what's most important is understanding the applications of AI and deep learning. It's less important to understand exactly how they work. It is important to know what we need in an organization or what the organization needs in order to be able to assimilate AI. And uh, what are the limitations of AI? So you know, many you have these uh, uh, you have these uh, you know crazy uh, uh, assumptions that if you assimilate AI, you don't need any you don't need people anymore, and it, it will just replace all of them. So it's very important, I think, to understand the applications and the limitations. It's less important for them to concentrate on exactly how we structure these neural networks. That may be true, but some some amount of transparency, right? I mean, I wouldn't want to be running a factory and had no idea how the data that I'm basing my decisions on, you know, how it's generated. So there's some balance there between, you know, the level, um, uh, you know, of knowledge. Let's switch to, to Razor Labs. You have an interesting origin story. You, you met a gold mining company on a trip to Israel and, uh, and then things started to happen. <laughs> yeah, so it was uh, quite an, uh, an amazing story. We had uh, Newcrest, which is uh, the world's third uh, gold mining company, coming with a, uh, with a delegation to Israel, uh, visiting our offices. We were much uh, smaller back then. And um, they presented us with some, of the, with some of their challenges, some of the issues that they were facing. And uh, obviously, you know, we have no mining in Israel, have no natural resources. Recently, they did discover gas here, but no uh, metals and no, uh, uh, and no gold. And uh, we presented them the technology and we presented similar use cases, but applied to other sectors. And uh, they actually chose us to be, uh, to be their partner in their journey of assimilating AI. And it's, it's an amazing uh, collaboration that, uh, that lasts and still lasts for many years. We're um, essentially optimizing their entire uh, operations, bringing autonomy and uh, effectiveness to their operation through the assimilation of AI. And it actually came to the point where their CIO came to the Australian papers and published an entire article about that, which obviously gave us a very substantial boost in the Australian market. And you bootstrapped the startup up to 60 employees. And then you did something non-traditional for even for an Israeli tech startup because you, you did an IPO and you're now listed on the Israeli stock exchange as the first tech, arguably the first, at least for the first kind first of machine AI. learning company yeah. and first AI company on, on the Israeli stock exchange, which is different from most... The typical Israeli startup route would be, you know, you go to the US and try to make it big and set up a subsidiary... And, and then you, you, you scream and shout until you maybe get listed on NASDAQ or something. But why did you go this, this route? Instead of going to VCs, you mean? So, yes, uh, instead of going to VCs first. And then, you know, obviously what you do after this is another story. But, but just this decision to go on the Israeli stock exchange and, and not go to VCs for the first move. So uh, starting from uh, literally the inception of the company, it was, first of all, very important for us to be independent 
have you know the independent say and have only our the, the three partners in the in the board uh, and having that in addition to the fact that we wanted uh, a very um, a very clear cut product market fit and we we knew that if our product was good we would uh, we would be able to bootstrap the company and that's exactly what we did uh, so Taking the two of them together, actually, and, you know, obviously there is a very high demand for artificial intelligence solutions for these markets because it's really easy to uh, uh, to convert supreme technology to, to just pure business value, to, to pure dollars of whether it's additional throughput, of whether it's less downtime. It's, it's very simple. And through this demand or product, we were able to grow to uh, roughly 60 uh, team members. And the goal here is not uh, a, uh, is not uh, an exit strategy. We wanted to establish, you know, a serious and prospering uh, enterprise, and that's why we went to an IPO that we felt was the the best way for us. And we started from the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange, but our next goal is the is the Nasdaq in two years. That's where we were aiming. That's ambitious. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys are ambitious guys. Tell tell me a little bit about some of the clients that you have and what you do for them. So I understand you're you're involved in well, we've talked about natural resources, right? So that's how it started. And then we had talked a little bit about manufacturing generally and and how you are uh, taking on sort of that market. And then the third market is utilities. What what do you do for these various segments specifically? Is it machine monitoring like we've talked about before or are there other other specific things that you can accomplish for these clients? Uh, so there are several, uh, uh, you might say, use cases. The most frequent use cases, the use case that we get from our clients are prevention of future downtime because that's a clear cut on you prevent this downtime, it's additional throughput that's being created. Uh, that's the, the, the majority of the use cases that we get. Um, in addition to that, uh, you know, eventually we have the OE uh, the overall uh, uh, equipment effectiveness measure. And what's important for the business stakeholders is to maximize this OE and they're willing and they understand that AI is a very powerful tool uh, to, to perform this maximization. From our, from our uh, research, we know that an average OE on a Western country is roughly 65% in a factory. So there's a lot of room of improvement. And uh, many times starting from the downtime of the machine is a really uh, is a really good place to start because you really get to the 80-20 of the value that you can get. So we're speaking about uh, prevention of downtime. We're speaking about condition-based monitoring. We're speaking about indication in real time of improper maintenance done to the machine. So it's literally a system that's in real time ingesting all these sensors, many times tens of thousands of sensors, and very intuitively giving you these insights, whether it's in a dashboard, on your smartphone, uh, other clients ask for SMS messages, any uh, um, any way that they want, uh, prevention of quality issues, and so on, and obviously machine optimization, for some given a KPI, as we discussed uh, previously. Hmm. Well, there are there are a lot of different targets that you could have if you are a company in any of these segments, right? And everybody wants oper- operational efficiencies, and even small efficiencies can make can make a, can make a difference. What what do you think about? Um, I guess the current situation. So you shared with me a little bit earlier, and this is not kind of the bad mouth clients, right? But it's just generally in the market. There is a little bit of bewilderment around what data can do, and and 
arguably, you know, most organizations, obviously not your clients because they have started to take this on board, but, you know, we have known about big data or any data and the importance they could have in, on a business for, for a while, arguably. Why is it that the operations practice of many factories and manufacturers, why have they been slower, arguably, to take on and start using these kinds of metrics and, and maybe even just uh, are, are actually not even exploring this, thinking that it is, you know, it's something we will get to. Why would you say that maybe perhaps smaller factories especially have been pretty slow, whether it is to take in advanced machines or even experiment with robots, like all of this stuff, it's very much talked about. It's very much out there as the newest, biggest thing. And everybody claims that they are looking, but comparatively few have actually implemented them at scale, at least pre-pandemic, right, in, in their operations. Why is that? So, uh, first of all, um, when we first got into this sector, we obviously wanted to, to hear the thoughts of executive in this uh, sector about assimilating AI. And uh, the first, and that's, you know, it's... it's, it's uh, it's really, uh, uh, it's really in my memory that uh, a survey made by Accenture says that three out of uh, four C-suite executives believe that if they don't embrace AI and they don't use AI uh, in their operations in the next five years, uh, they are risking their business. So while there are executives, I mean, out there or there are factories or plants out there that do not leverage AI, today you have more and more and with very high pace and very high uh, increase of numbers uh, of plants that are actively in factories, actively looking for AI solutions to assimilate uh, in order to maximize uh, OE. I think that um, there are two, two main factors here. The first factor is the data. Uh, up until recently or up until several years ago, most uh, companies or most factories uh, simply did not uh, uh, store the data that was gathered. So you had the sensors, the sensors were used for the PLC, but nobody stored the sensors. And the installation of historians uh, for, many, for many clients, for many factories, has been uh, there only for the, f uh, for the past few years. And obviously with no data, you, you cannot leverage AI. And the second uh, component is you know, a vicious cycle where you store data, the data originally is not of such a high quality because it's not of high quality because it's of low quality. It's very hard to actually leverage it for some business value. If you don't leverage for business value, you have no incentive of improving the quality of the data because it takes effort and so on. It goes into a vicious cycle and machine learning tools are simply not powerful enough in order to leverage this data with so high discrepancies. And only when you get to deep learning, which is really a technology of the past few years, there it has the complexity in the models that's uh, able to overcome these discrepancies. And that's also one of the key reasons why we went in that direction. To, today, when we take data from a factory, from a manufacturer, the first thing that the manufacturer says is, we tried working with so many companies and they gave up because the data was not good enough. And we always smile because we hear it so many times. And, and you actually get that with machine learning. It has so many discrepancies. Sensors are being replaced without any warning. Uh, 
um, uh, parts of the entire machine are being replaced. You know, the entire statistics of the data just changes and the model is not aware of that. And you've got to have this super, uh, this high complexity of deep learning to be able to not only perform this optimization or prediction or whatever, but also track these, these changes, whether because of a maintenance or because of some other changing environment and be able to incorporate them uh, uh, in the model. So we, we call that evolving AI, AI that adapts itself to the changing environment. I want to talk about just one very specific challenge that I've at least heard others speak about. If you mm -hmm. think about you know, deep learning, which we've talked about now, uh, you know, it comes from the IT side. It comes from the software side. Now, operations, plant operations, and generally the field of operations management is more of an engineering culture that traditionally doesn't really rely on software. And it's a different kind of a, of a vibe. It's a different... Um, culture perhaps but from you your side you kind of are coming at it from the software side what were the learning challenges you faced in trying to understand what a manufacturing business is and because right because they're not irrational challenges that these people have they're actually trying to operate a factory they're trying to get a shop floor to work seems very different from the mind of a bright IT person, you know, anywhere in your organization who's just trying to optimize an algorithm. They're, they're a little bit, there's a little bit more complexity there, real-life right. complexity. You're, you're totally correct. I mean, eventually that's exactly the difference between OT and IT. You know, the, very, uh, uh, the, very major, the vast majority of the personnel uh, in, a, in a mining facility, in a mining site, or in a manufacturing plant or a factory they come. They, you know, they uh, uh, they come in the morning to work, and their goal is to make sure that the machines work today and tomorrow and next week, and they uh, they deal with the day-to-day -day challenges of the operations, and therefore I think that one of the key critical things of a factory that wants to assimilate AI is to have the innovation department that can basically it's a bridge between startups like us and the operations, because you cannot expect from an operation, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, uh, you, well, if you predict malfunctions, you cannot uh, expect from a maintenance superintendent or improvements of uh, uh, superintendent to leave all uh, their work and start uh, uh, tweaking AI algorithms. So that's the goal of the innovation department. And they look for obviously many years into the future and they uh, um, establish the pilots, they establish the, the proof of values, and from there you can go further into the actual assimilation in the OT operations, in the day-to-day -day, uh, life of the personnel there. How difficult is your software to install, right? There's the big movement now in IT to kind of uh, go towards more what's called low-code or even no-code environments where, where people from OT or really any engineering background and even even just someone who kind of is used to excel sheets can mm -hmm. can start to engage on these issues where, where where are we you know i mean i could just imagine mm -hmm. that for deep learning the challenge is quite significant because you kind of need to build not only just the basic software skill platforms you know to make them usable but you actually have to build the algorithmic level and some of the inputs and outputs and connect it to the sensor. I mean, there, there are a bunch of cha challenges before that can be made simple. How, where are we, you know, w w with this challenge? Are you familiar with Wix, the company? It's an yes. Israeli company. 
Okay, yeah. so Wix are essentially a codeless solution for websites. And yeah. today there are many companies that are essentially like the, the Wix of, uh, of AI. Essentially with zero lines of code, you can build uh, an AI model, whether it's machine learning and deep learning or deep learning. And uh, the thing that is, do you have a trade-off? Obviously the advantage is it's no, it's no code. The disadvantage is that you can only build very simple applications, right? I mean, for example, differentiate between a dog and a cat, that's something that today you can build uh, with almost no code. Fusing together tens of thousands of Py tags or thousands of Py tags in, and dealing with all these data discrepancies is something that you cannot do with no code today. I don't think you can even do it with no code in the next many years because the complexity there requires you to be a really uh, a, a very high expert in deep learning. And what we put a very high emphasis on, and that's where we uh, invested years of R&D, is to be able to come with models that are already pre-trained on a very vast uh, library of components and have this adaptability to the changing environment. So for example, if I learned on a, on a, on a motor of a, or a drive of this, of GE, and now I need to adapt it to Siemens, it does that automatically without me being involved. So that's really cutting edge technology. And from the client side, it allows us to very swiftly and very quickly deploy the models uh, and with really minimal uh, involvement and headache from the client because the AI does that by itself, but it took many years of R&D to get there. Hmm. If you think about the coming year, what are some of the industry developments that you, you might be excited about? Uh, you know, if you were looking at it from the perspective of where your field is moving or, or indeed, you know, where industry 4.0 is, is moving, how, how slowly does this move and what should we be expecting in, you know, in, a, in the very, very short term? What, what are the things that are happening in the industry from your point of view right now? So, um, you know, you have that, like this pyramid of AI adoption. So from our, from our experience, more, most of the clients are really in the beginning of the AI journey. Some of them have never tried AI at all. Some of them are really uh, playing with the first, uh, with the first uh, POCs or, or pilots of AI. So we expect more companies to have AI embedded within their operations. And we, we need to understand that obviously there's the technological part, but we have the not less important change management part because AI really changes the way that these operations work. Uh, suddenly a person, instead of you know doing the, the tedious work, only uh, gets insights from the AI in real time and now focuses more on the creative side of things or only on approving the decisions and not literally uh, uh, performing the optimizations alone. So this change management of assimilating AI in the operations, I think we'll see more and more uh, of that when all these POCs become deployments and all these deployments will become the part of the day-to-day -day operations and life of the OT and not the IT of the OT uh, uh, section. Uh, from the technology perspective, today most of the most of the use cases and most of the um, um, yeah most of the use cases are concentrated on prediction, predicting something, whether it's predicting throughput variability, predicting energy efficiency, predicting malfunctions. That's and and the reason for that is because that's more basic, and you've got to start with something. I think that in the next few years we will see more shift towards optimization when a client 
will define an overall or a holistic KPI, whether it's minimal amount of malfunction, maximum throughput, minimum variability, minimum pollution, and so on. And an AI will holistically not only look at the machine, but in the entire process and optimize the entire production line in order to meet this KPI, maximize the KPI. So that's where I, I think things are heading. Um, I, would have, uh, I would add one more thing. I think that one of the also critical things in deep learning is having what's called externability. So you mentioned it briefly. It's very important for the stakeholders, whether it's on site or the business stakeholders, to understand why, a why AI performs some decision, why it performs some prediction or some optimization. It cannot be a black box because eventually... The, the impact that it has, whether you need to send teams thousands of, uh, of miles to, to some location, when you, whether you need to change your operations, it cannot be based on, uh, on a prediction that you don't understand. And that's something that we put a lot of effort and a lot of R&D into that to make sure that these black boxes are open and understandable. Hmm. Well, it, it seems to be exciting times to be in manufacturing. How do you explain that people generally don't quite see this? If you think about the skill shortage in manufacturing, the talent gap, the fact that so many young people don't make the choice you made and you know create a startup in manufacturing or at least targeting manufacturing, there, how do you explain this discrepancy? So all of these advanced technologies, Industry 4.0, like robotics, sensors, right, control systems, and, and, and indeed deep learning, like the hottest thing in AI, yet there's a shortage of people going into manufacturing where these techniques are being pioneered today, or at least the potential is enormous. When is that going to change? When is this lag going to catch up? When, when are we actually going to realize what a fascinating industry, well, you know, I guess you're in several industries, but just let's take manufacturing. Fascinating set of challenges. They can't all be solved by AI, but it, certainly in your thesis, they can really, really improve. And it's exciting. <laughs> so I, I think that things are happening. I think they're happening maybe slow, slower than we would have wanted. But eventually, these are traditional markets. And if you take, you know, we have a client that ships every day a million tons of iron ore to the entire world. So when you take these gigantic operations, it's not something that you can change over a day. But when you actually go and look through the years, you do things that you do see that things are changing and factories and the OE of factories, they do increase because of AI. I agree with you. I mean, it is changing uh, slower than we would have wanted, but it's it's because you know it's it's so massive and it takes time to change things. Uh, and you know, here in Israel, I mean, we're we're the startup nation. I mean, our goal is to try and solve everything through technology. That's why we have so many people here going into the directions of uh, deep learning and and AI in general. And uh, we're trying to maximize the the impact and you know really push our clients and help them as much as possible. You know, many times is very clearly showing them how this algorithmic superiority translates into, into dollars, into better throughput, into lower emissions. It's, 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 it's very clear. And these processes take time. We're trying to <laughs> accelerate it as much as possible. Michael, I was just recently in Tel Aviv. Well, I guess recently it was before the pandemic. But, but anyway... I, w I worry for you. You seem very busy. Do you have time to go to the beach? 
<laughs> ah, on we- on weekends. <laughs> Good to hear. Well, look, I always have to look out for for founders and and make sure that you get your quality, uh, you know, rest. Uh, but it's been great to speak with you, and thanks for enlightening us. And I look forward to welcoming you for the for the panel uh, next week, where we'll be taking a, a peek at the startup nation and all the exciting startups that are going into it and going into manufacturing. So, so thanks a lot, Michael. Thank you very much, Strand. It was a pleasure being here. You have just listened to episode 19 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trondarne Unheim. The topic was machine learning and manufacturing, and our guest was Michael Zolotov, CTO and co-founder at Razor Labs. In this conversation, we talked about where we are with machine learning and AI for manufacturing, what are the main techniques, what's possible now, and what will be possible soon. My takeaway is that machine learning is definitely entering manufacturing over the next few years. Already, interesting experiments are underway to do simpler things, such as prevent future downtime using sensor data already being captured by advanced machinery. Pure machine optimization can only get us so far, though. The real potential lies in complex business process optimization and simplification with augmented frontline operations. Technology plays a part, but clever workers, operators, and engineers will have to make intelligent use of the technologies available. They cannot just blindly implement. For that, we need reskilling. Always learn. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 27, Industry 4.0 Tools. Episode 13, Get Manufacturing Superpowers. Or episode 14, Bottom-Up and Deep Digitization of Operations. Augmented, upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 Frontline Operations.